Welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. Humans of Magic is sponsored by Cardboard Live. Cardboard Live revolutionizes card and board game streaming by providing you with dynamic, real-time information for games like Magic the Gathering. Check us out during the Twitch live broadcasts of the Star City Games Open Series and visit our website at cardboard.live. To support Humans of Magic and the upcoming Humans of Magic book, please visit patreon.com slash jamessue. That's patreon.com slash j-a-m-e-s-h-s-u. Welcome to part two of my interview with Mate Zatokai. In part one, we covered Mate's playing career. Now we're going to go deep into his current set of responsibilities, which includes commentary for Wizards of the Coast and managing Team Hararia Pros. Here we go. You're talking about you having the self-awareness and realization that maybe you've done as much as you can as a Magic player. So how did you transition from full-time player into caster? In this day and age, it might seem absurd, but I asked. I asked the right people if, you know, if I can do it. I didn't, didn't know if I could do it, but uh, already I loved watching Pro Tour coverage. Uh, in general, like uh, even when I I was there, uh, like I I, came, I went home and I watched everything I could, like all all the magic content. It was around the time where I know that uh, Rashad Miller started doing GG's live uh, over in the states and covering tournaments. And I I knew from the protos I was playing that you know the coverage of some of the coverage team, uh, some like Brian David Marshall, Randy Bueller, and of course uh, when Rich Hagen started going on European GPs and doing his podcast. I uh, I like I interacted with him a, a few times. Of course, he interviewed me for his shorts uh, that were posted on the coverage website. And I remember once uh, when we were chatting, and uh, it was a GP in Rimini in Italy, where he was interviewing me. And uh, like afterwards, I told him like, "Yeah, Rich, like I saw in the US, they're starting to do like more coverage of like GPs and other tournaments. Like, uh, I would love to give it a try if if uh, if that ever if that ever happens." Uh, in Europe and he's like okay like he didn't have any maybe any concrete plans at the time but uh it was around the time where I actually quit my first job and I I uh I went to work somewhere else somewhere where I had way more time to do what I wanted like I I was less busy at work and it it was more flexible with my time so I could leave on Friday at noon and come back on Monday at noon and like as long as I worked enough hours over the rest of the week, it was fine. And uh, like my my superiors were also like supportive and like me traveling for for GPs. I got I got also paid double what I was paying at my first job. Yes, it was like it, it was just like a, a really good thing. And it was at the time where after uh, already a few months at my new job, like I had the fire back. Like at this point, I haven't been playing, uh, haven't been playing Pro Tours for like a year and a half maybe something like that and i was uh, maybe a year a year or something yeah uh and i was like i was getting the fire back right because i suddenly had more time i was watching all the all the possible coverage i could and i i was still reading articles and now that i had more time i was playing more 
and I started PDQing. Uh, I started PDQing as well. And you know, it's at uh, at one day uh, I get this email and like from Rich, and it's like, yeah, we want to do European GP coverage. Like you mentioned that you want to want to be part of it. Do you want to come? And I'm like, yes, I want to try it, <laughs> of course. Uh, so, and I remember that was the first tournament that I did was in, Le- in Lyon in uh, I think 2012 ish so uh, at the time i was like yeah i mean why not it was the first time i properly got to talk to simon gertson one of my closest friends now of course rich was there and uh, rashad was there and we were just trying to get you know get a good uh some a good coverage going even though like the technical aspects were weren't really cooperating but it was it was three tournaments uh, uh one autumn in row and yeah it was uh, it was magical I, I really enjoyed it from the start i i didn't feel i was particularly good at it from the start but i felt like i kept improving and this was kind of like the the big break that i got that's incredible it just seems so unreal yet it is real and it happened that's great it, it's a sign of the times these days. If I wanted to do coverage, I would go about it completely differently, right? I would try to, you know, do some content myself, like dubbing over matches or, you know, trying to maybe cover some smaller local tournaments or, or something like that and, and try to build up a resume so that I could apply to do coverage at GPs, Pro Tours, wherever. But at the time, it was just like, I just asked and it happened, which was which was strange. But to be fair, like I think Rich had a very good sense that I I'm a very reliable person. He knows that I I've been playing for a while, that I'm a good I was a decent enough player. He knew that I liked uh, watching coverage. He knew that I uh, I uh, was into it uh, uh, and that I could see myself do and he could see me doing it and uh, providing a, a different thing. You know, like my English might not be perfect, my accent might be might be strong, but he knew that I had something that I could bring to the table, and maybe he didn't have many other good options uh, apart from that. So, so it was a it was like a, the perfect storm where I suddenly had more time. I had a work work that could allow me to to do this job, and plus I started playing competitively again because I I also realized that if if I want to be a good uh, commentator, I have to know what's going on. I have to know the formats. I have to be very aware of what's happening. I have to know the players, uh, you know, the up-and-coming ones, the successful ones. And But these are the things that, as I explained at the start, like I love following Magic in general. If, even if I was playing or not, I, I still knew all the big names. I knew some. I knew random PTQ winners in the United States because that was just interesting to me. You were just a fan of the game and you, you followed the coverage. Exactly, yeah. And I still am. That's incredible. And I think you're selling yourself short if you think that there was nobody else at the time. It definitely sounds to me like there were a confluence of factors that made you seem like the right candidate in Rich's mind. Yeah, one of the things that I think then kind of uh, stabilized my position doing it was uh, that I started being successful again. As in, like I, I started playing PTQs and actually thanks to Willie Adel from Brazil, uh, he gave me a deck for a Magic Online PTQ that I won, and it was actually John with but playing Boom Bust, which was uh, quite unorthodox at the time. And like, but the deck deck performed really well at the at the PTQ I played it in, and I qualified for Pro Tour uh, Dragons Maze in 2013. It was in San Diego, and actually that was my first Pro Tour after missing uh, five five or six Pro Tours. 
and I top aided that one. So I was I was back on the train, so to speak. So uh, it was like suddenly, you know, it, I was not just a, a, a has been who's doing commentary. I was like now a, a, a player who's considered good in the booth at European GPs. And I think that's something that people don't talk about often enough is how important it is for the commentator to be connected to the game because I can just give you from personal experience. I'm nowhere near the the experienced commentator you are, but I've had the the privilege of doing a few local events and I definitely feel much more comfortable when I understand the decks, the players and the metagame. To me, it's like if I have to almost like read or study the metagame before the event I'm commentating, it's almost too difficult because I feel like I wouldn't be able to to give any genuine insight and really help the viewer learn about the game as it's being played. You know what I mean? Yeah, I absolutely understand. I I know uh, I my fellow casters know how angry I can be when they come to tournaments unprepared. <laughs> really? I, okay. Yeah, I, I can express my uh, my dissatisfaction with it. Uh, but of course, oh, there's also the fact that I, I it happened to me once where I was really busy and I didn't play as much as I needed to. Um, to um, to cast a tournament and now it was terrible and I was I made such big mistakes about like basic card text that I should have known that I was really ashamed of myself I I got into it as the tournament went on but it was still like a moment where I I knew that like uh, I, this is not not a job where I can you know slack off and just come unprepared and I I am very critical of myself and then critical of others in that regard but I try to I try to not tell them uh, in a in a in a negative way I try to make it a bit more positive. I also think it's really interesting how you said that, you know, right when you got this job offer, you were also experiencing success as a player. The fact that you took the job suggests that you do, you did think through it and you thought that, you know, this was a, a better long term thing for you than actually trying to grind the pro tour or, or the player role again, even yeah. though you were getting success and the fire was back. Yeah. So that must have been not that must have not been an easy decision for you either at the time. No, but it, it still it still felt like something I wanted to do, and uh, like I enjoy casting. But the, the problem came uh, uh, like in the upcoming years, basically, where suddenly I had there was a, a big tension developing in my life. So uh, one was that I was still working a regular job. I work in marketing. If anyone is interested, and so. Uh, I was having a day job. I suddenly was doing well at the Pro Tour, like uh, following the the top eight at uh, Pro Tour Dragons Maze. I top 16 two other Pro Tours in a row, which basically qualified me for for a bunch of tournaments. And um, this is this was one of the moments where actually, so I I was at the job for like. A, two years now so you know i was casting going to tournaments uh, to eu gps mostly to commentate but sometimes to play i was going to these uh, to these pro tours but i i mentioned even before that i are at the time i already you know i got married uh to my long-term girlfriend at the time and i was still had the day job and so like my time was a very big commodity and i had to allocate my time very carefully and so after after these tournament successes, uh, uh, where I top 80, top 16, top 16, uh, I actually decided to quit my job. And I thought, like, I could make a run 
at being a pro. It was at this time where I quickly ran out of vacation days at my job, and I still had a couple of more pro tours left in the year to go to. And I, I, I had such a good start to the season with, like... At the time, it was thirty. I had thirty points after two pro tours, and there were, and there were. You need fifty to hit platinum, right? And there were still two more PTs to go, a bunch of GPs that I could play, and I really thought I could do it. So, like, I quit my job. I went to the United States for like three weeks to play some GPs and a pro tour, and then I did it again later in the summer. Like the first tournament went okay uh, w- after having quit my job, but the second tournament I went 05 and I was as deflated as one can be. Like I did so poorly. I was I spent weeks testing in a in a special house with Martin Yuza, Lucas, Ivan, Frank, Karsten, and other other really good players. And I I and I 05 the last pro tour of the season where I really needed to get a good result to hit platinum. And while I was still like gold, so I was qualified for all the PTs, it was still like, it was a humbling experience. You didn't live up to your own standards, I would say, right? No, especially, you know, and suddenly I, I quit a really good job I uh, I let I left my I let my wife down in a way because she had to you know she had to be the one to I I was still I still had some income like it it wasn't it wasn't like I, we didn't have money or anything but she was the one who had to go to work every day while I was at home playing magic you know trying to make this happen and of course I I had a safety net I knew that I I had some friends who could hire me afterwards at a at a at a startup that I that I felt like I could be successful in so I I knew that if this thing do, it doesn't work out I have somewhere somewhere to fall back on but it was uh, it was a really sobering experience and uh it was at the, at the time where I I decided that like I'm not going to try to go full pro anymore I'm just going to uh <clears throat> Go play the PTs, see how well I can do, cast the GPs I can, and see how things figure out without trying to force it too much. Of course, being competitive as I was, for all these pro tours, I still uh, made made a testing team. We still came out usually a week before to test, and I really tried my I tried my hardest to to you know at least invest enough effort into it to to give myself a chance to do well again. Sure. In that moment, you still give it your all. That's. Uh, I think that's very consistent with everything you've told me so far. Yeah. So yeah. So it was at the time where I was. Uh, I was doing the casting and and uh, and try to try to do well. I I I made it well enough the season after still to be qualified for all the pro tours so it was a decent enough uh, area for me. And the best part for, for me was that I was. Even without being good at magic, I was um, getting my main income supplemented by doing coverage, which, as I mentioned, while my country has developed since uh, since the early days of me playing magic, suddenly I had way more money at my disposal to do what I to travel, to bring my wife over to to some of these pro tours after they've ended, and have some nice vacation days and everything. So it wasn't like. Um, it wasn't tough times for me. It was really, actually, a really nice era. But I, it's still like I still had to invest a lot of time into testing, and and at some point I, I realized that I can't keep doing this anymore. And uh, at at the start of my last pro tour season, I basically said to myself that if I can't top eight a pro tour uh, anymore, I'm not going to be playing on the pro tour anymore. So I had a full season of like four, three or four pro tours where. 
I, I was doing really well at some of them, but as I as my uh, as uh, my losses started increasing towards the end, I, I my heart wasn't in it, and like I was only playing for the big results and not the kind of like the, the kind of results that keep you qualified uh, for the pro tour. That's so fascinating because I'm getting a really good sense of your your character and personality. Like you want to be one of the best at whatever you, it is you're doing. I mean, it's it's not enough to just stay on the pro tour, but you want to you want to top 8 or make uh, an impact that would make yourself satisfied. I say it's fascinating because every player is so different because I, you know, I talk to some players, they're happy just being just being there and it, it it sounds like that was never really an option with you, especially with your other life stuff in in the way, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, at some point, I just wanted to, you know, uh, I in- enjoyed the lifestyle that I had. I had, uh, I I was playing the pro tour, which I liked because I had so many friends over there. But I had the good job where, like, I I was um, I was working with people I enjoyed. I kept learning stuff. Plus, I had my secondary job at uh, doing coverage, which I also immensely enjoyed. My friends, and it also allowed me to stay connected with the community and with my friends. So, like. That this kind of era was was very good for me. The only one that wasn't too happy about this all the time was my wife, because I spent a, a lot of my vacation days doing this rather than spending time with her. And as we were looking to start a family, this was starting to be something that just didn't didn't make sense to do uh, uh, anymore. Yeah, that's it's always tough. Life and magic, magic and life. Yeah, uh, but one of the things that actually came out of it was, and this transitions to our to the third thing that doing the 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 management side of things, where I uh, since I was so well connected to various aspects of uh, of Magic, of course doing coverage, but also you know being connected with the tournament organizers of the GPs at the time, which wasn't just Channel Fireball doing them, but it was a bunch of companies competing to organize Grand Prix all over the world and uh the judge the judge scene of course because we use judges uh quite a bit uh on coverage and i interacted with them on pro tours so i i knew the ins and outs of of the game as such and uh an opportunity presented itself for one of the tournament organizers it was tournament center at the time which is a brand owned by dazzle which is a belgian company which tried wanted to do something to promote their gps better and they so they thought that fine maybe creating a pro team would be something to that they could do and i told them i can do it for you if you give me a budget i'll find the players for it they're going to wear your shirts they can do activities for you and they were like yeah let's do it so we made it happen and i uh for two I think for two years I was uh, I was the manager and a pro of the tournament center team, which was uh, just a, a loose connection of some of my friends on on the European GP circuit. And yeah, it felt like a win-win, right? It, it gave more money into the hands of the players, and it also gave them a platform to to make them more visible. And it it was at the time where I was really starting starting to see these things take shape. And then of course after my connection ended, I I saw that. Um, Wizards started to to promote the team series as well, so that was like like a culmination of of kind of like what I've been working towards. Even though my cooperation with Tournament Center ended at the time. About being involved in the organization and management of a team, what was it about it specifically that really appealed to you? I mean, it sounds like the end benefit to the players was very appealing. Like you know, they they could. Uh, have a little bit more in their pockets and maybe learn from each other. But for you personally, what was the benefit or the the learning from starting to do that? 
to simplify, it felt like easy money, as in it was doing something that I would can easily handle because I know all the people, I can communicate, I can you know manage uh, projects based on my experience from work that I can make something like that happen. And it felt like getting paid to do so, like the investment of time felt like worth it for the for what I was getting out of it, especially because of course it all allowed me to network more, to be connected with uh, with uh, with players more and so on. So it felt like a natural fit to what whatever I was doing anyway, with just a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, time investment. And the thing that really kind of like brought it to the next level was when one of my one of the players on my tournament center team told me that, hey Matteo, look. Um, there's uh, there's a situation where I know I'm I'm being part of tournament center, but uh, I don't think I'm going to renew for another season because there's there's someone who wants to sponsor me and uh, they're willing to offer me more money. And I'm like, who is it? Can you tell me? And he told me, and it was Tomohari Saito, uh, who is the owner uh, of the Hari uh, franchise. And so I messaged uh, Tomaru Saito and I told him, "Look, uh, I, I have I know all these players. This tournament center team is not uh, con- going to continue anymore. They're not willing to support it, and I can get you really uh, some good pro level players, like some platinum and gold level pros that can wear your shirts and and uh, represent you at the pro tour. And if you if you want, I can handle this for you." And it seemed like he was delighted. He, he got me in touch with uh, someone on their side, and uh, oh, I, I proposed like the players that, that I thought would be good brand ambassadors for, for the Haruya brand. They liked it, and we made the contract, and we agreed on the compensation for me. And since then, I've been the Haruya manager since. That's incredible. I have to say, I don't know Saito at all other than seeing him play at Magic tournaments all the time because the man just loves Magic. He does. He just seems super well connected, and obviously, like I said, he loves magic, and so I can definitely see him wanting to do more around the world. And I'm so I'm I'm so happy to hear that you know you made that connection with him, and you were very proactive in in making it happen. It sounds like, uh, but it was also uh, you know a thing of good fortune in in a sense. Like again, just like rich in coverage, it was like this one moment where I uh, I was able to capitalize on and be able to you know sell myself pitch myself to someone who had some goals and I could help achieve them their goals. Yeah, I think that's why people say luck is really putting yourself in a position to succeed. But everything that you've done up to that point in your life really helped you get it or not get it, as it were. So I think it's not really so much luck or fortune as much as putting yourself in a position to to take on something like that and things just lined up. So that's, that's really awesome to hear. Yeah. It's uh, but I definitely acknowledge how lucky I've gotten over my lifespan playing magic and also these other things. Like I, I believe I'm a very fortunate person to have been doing what I've been doing and being able to lead a life as I have, where I know not everyone can. And I, I really truly appreciate it. So, Mate, when it comes to managing a professional magic team, what is something that people don't know about that you actually consider to be quite important to your role? Um, I think it's a lot to do with actually knowing the players and being able to be flexible 
around them. Uh, some magic pro players still have a job. Some write articles. Uh, some just play magic online a lot of the time. You know, some of them use different communication channels. So uh, I, I'm always trying to be just very flexible and uh, trying to make them do things at at their time so maybe not always pushing uh the f hardest deadlines but it's after only a, a few times that you're that you see uh how a player thinks how he works what what approaches best work with him so i always try to get to know my players as best as i could so i could adjust to them and uh, hopefully uh, make them feel comfortable can you give me some specific examples of expectations that you may have of pro players and what you Basically, what you expect out of them. Well, my my first one that I I really prefer is honesty. Uh, I don't mind if you know they have a deadline, they don't meet it. I, not saying I don't mind, but I, I'm buffering. I'm creating a buffer for any of my deadlines anyway. So, but what I don't like when they miss the deadline, they don't even let me know um, that something was about to happen and, and, or they, they had some personal situation because I can always understand it. Uh, I, uh, there's so much thing stuff going on in people's lives that it's understandable with that. You can't always, uh, make everything happen at the right time. If it's something urgent, of course, they will, they will know that this is a hard, strict deadline and I need to have, uh, an interview or an article by, by a specific date. But I usually try to try to be a little bit uh, flexible. So honest, from their side is very good and in general integrity right you want to work with players that have a, a good reputation in the game that they're they're respected and uh yes to have players that you're proud to represent that's actually a really good point so i am wondering when when it comes to selecting pro players to be part of a team what are some things that you, you've talked about things that you look for like integrity and good communication and and just transparency are there things on the flip side that are sort of red flags you know are there certain players who may be talented but you may not want to have him or her on the team if so what are kind of the the red flags for you i usually try to uh, avoid talking about who I'm not choosing, so to speak. Uh, but I, I'd rather like to look for the positives uh, in, in everyone. Of course, um, in general, I try to um, I try to avoid players who have uh, any sort of cheating history or at least very strong cheating allegations against them uh, being raised consistently in the community. Of course, there's different layers to this and. Uh, uh, it's a, very difficult to judge um, sometimes uh, what is real and what not. And I have been burned myself by uh, someone that uh, most people probably know in Fabrizio Anteri, who was a very close friend of mine and was part of my uh, tournament center uh, man team management. And um, his ban was... I, I I was I had assurances from him and from judges that he was clean and he... And he, I wouldn't say betray me, but he really let me down. And uh, so this is something I wouldn't want to repeat. So uh, basically getting players who are very, uh, have a sort of reputation. And, you know, that's sometimes you can get that by talking to your friends or talking to people around you. Like, what do you think about this player? How does he act? And in general, you, you, want, pe you want players that represent the brand you're, you're managing 
um, the, the best. So you, you really try to go for the uh, for the people that you think would fit the brand as well. And that's why I also think another uh, another uh, another thing I'd really I'd really like is positivity, like people being very optimistic rather than being Debbie Downers about things. So um, actively having a, a positive approach to the game and wanting to improve and not being too arrogant is very important to me. Yeah, definitely. And can you give me an example of a a player on your team who exhibits a lot of these uh, positive attributes? There's so many players that you're putting me on the spot here. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, sometimes it happens that I haven't worked with uh, with or I haven't gotten to know a lot of the people right away um and so it takes a little, a little bit while like an example is like the haru latin team members uh it was the la- last addition to my uh, haru management and i didn't know i mean i knew of all the players and i did talk to them quite a bit uh in the past but uh some of them really surprised me about how open and positive they were uh, an example being uh, someone like Sebastian Pozzo, who maybe not as very well known uh, overall um, in the magic community, but he was just—he's a very, really nice influence, and so is, of course, the Luis Salvato, the the reigning player of the year, right? So these guys have been really positive, and I was I was surprised how how easy it is to work with them. That's great. And does your multilingual ability help you in this respect sometimes when talking to certain players uh because i know everyone probably communicates in english but does uh being fluent in other languages help you in some way i wouldn't say it helps directly when working with those players i always talk english to them anyway uh but it has helped me in the past uh, for myself just to uh you know it's a good a good conversation starter it's a a nice thing that you can that you can uh, say about yourself and you know if you can lead a conversation a little bit in german or french as i have in the past it it uh I would say it makes you a little bit more likable because <laughs> it shows like I've put a lot of effort into studying a foreign language and going beyond the borders of my country, expanding my horizons, and, and people usually reflect very positively on it. But unfortunately, I, it only goes uh, so far. I don't speak Spanish or Portuguese or Polish or any of the uh, only of the big languages uh, that my, uh, people on my team speak right now. Mate, switching gears slightly... Can you tell me a little bit about the legendary team Eureka? <laughs> I'd love to know how the team started, your role on the team, and maybe your learnings from the experience. But let's start from the beginning. Basically, how did the team form and, and how were you a part of that? It's quite a complicated history, I guess. At some point in 2013, I wanted to find a solid testing team, and uh, that testing team actually then uh, was kind of like the first, uh, the first iteration of the Eureka team, which was mostly. Um, uh, like uh, I would say, like a local team. So it was a, a, a bunch of players from Hungary, a few Austrian players, a few German players, and sort of this sort of connection of of uh, like these four countries, including mine, uh, being a Slovak. Uh, kind of we we made a 
made a nice testing team for Pro Tour in Dublin, where I managed to top 16. We had some other okay results in the team as well. It was actually a nice experience. I did want to explore uh, a few other options for the following Pro Tours, so I didn't really stick with them. But I know that uh, a few Pro Tours later, um, Martin, uh, a Pro Tour which Martin Dang won with, uh, and I think it was Dragons of Tarkir, uh, they had a team called Tomo Tomo Tomo, uh, which was like uh, again some players from the from the team uh, that was also present in Dublin, and then some some uh, players from uh, Norway uh, and they, uh, a few Danes and so on. And uh, I figured like they were m- m- most of them were like people I knew or was relatively close to, and so. Uh, uh, I joined them for the following Pro Tour, uh, which was, uh, I think, Pro Tour Origins, which was won actually by a team member of ours, uh, Joel Larson. And uh, yeah, it was it was then where we kind of figured out, okay, we can make this a proper uh, good powerhouse team uh, with the players we have. And we kind of then started conversations uh, about who do we want on the team, how do we want to test, and so on. And it was just we just had them, we just had a good time. And uh, basically, from for the following season where we were actually pretty tightly knit team and working together and yeah it was it was really good times i i was very happy to be part of such testing team that's great and who were the members of the team uh well there were, there were quite a few and and the players kept changing <laughs> over time so it's really hard to say a, a single kind of like uh uh, a single configuration that worked, but it was, it was mostly consisted of uh, some combination of Swedish players. So at the time it was the Pro Tour champion Joel Larsen, maybe Magnus Lanto, Ola Rade, and a few Danes, maybe uh, Martin Müller, Martin Dang, uh, and if, um, maybe Simon Nielsen was also in and out. And we also had Emmanuel Gershenson of Austria as well as Oliver Polagrotman. And I also managed to rope in uh, the French player Pierre Dajan, who was also a very good influence on the team. So this was like the core uh, European side of the team. And later on, as I was fading out of Magic, we also added a few of the of, of Americans. This uh, going a little bit about against the European uh, frame that we put ourselves in, like the Eureka. So it was uh, we started discussing with um, with Brad Nelson and Brian Brondouin. Uh, Corey Baumeister and adding a little bit more flair to the team as as uh, players kept uh, chopping in and out. That's quite a quite a nice globally diverse team, and I, I'm curious, what would be the pitch to these players who are considering joining the team because it's so diverse. They come from different countries. It's actually quite unusual if if I think about how teams are formed today. And so what what was the how how did you guys you know manage to rope in players and get them to join that that's uh because it seems like it would be a lot of work to maintain a relationship with all the geographic diversity yeah i mean most of the, as as we started off as a european team we met, we meet each other at european gps quite often at the time because i was either playing or doing coverage 
at all the GPs, basically. Uh, I, I was there, and so were most of the players at, at a time. So we had regular contact. But plus, since I since the tournament sent days, I, I managed to, you know, get some of the... Um, some of the players that I thought were up and coming had a had a bunch of talent, and were still able uh, would be able to work together. And I think the pivotal moment for for another group for the group when I wasn't part of it was the fact that when Martin Dang won the Pro Tour, it was like a big testament to the fact that you know. Uh, like a European team can can create some good decks, have some good results on the pro tour, and they they have achieved that. So it's always easy to make players join a pro tour winning team. And one of the things I'm most proud of was actually the fact that we managed to uh, kind of upset the uh, hegemony of of the of the existing pro teams, right? Because there was the there were the players of channel the teams of Channel Fireball, uh, right? The, your powerhouse teams that were the Peach Garden Oath based teams uh, also were like really powerful. And these teams always had, I would say, uh, were quite aggressive in saying like, "Oh, we have the best testing team. We have the best results. Look at us go." And it was true most of the time, but then suddenly there was there was us this European team, and suddenly we were we were placing a, a player in the top eight of a pro tour almost every single event, and people started noticing that, and it felt like it's really easy to get people to join when you're having success, and so people because people want to latch onto the, onto that success and maybe uh, try to remedy some of the shortcomings that they might have with their previous testing teams. And this is one of the things that I also want to. Uh, 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 want to add to this uh, me trying to join this particular team and then reframing it as team eureka basically came after uh, me being quite unhappy with my prior testing team which while a squad of very capable and amazing players such as martin Yuza, lucas blohan and, and others it just left me frustrated with uh, the way communication was going on and uh, just the team was i still to this day remember the team meeting after the last pro tour where I tested with them and it was just a very downbeat uh, room where everyone was like disappointed and, and some people said like okay next pro tour is going to be my last one and I, I'm not sure if this is where I want to be uh, going at or some other people being like I just want to change a few things and I basically I told them that I, I don't I, I'm not able to continue testing with them because also they required a very big time commitment which I, which I just couldn't invest uh, which is understandable so it was more like we parted ways in uh, in a positive way but it was kind of that understanding that I needed something different uh, that led me to in search for people who would like to join me on my venture yeah for sure I think this is actually a an underexplored topic because when I think about, you know, talented people around the world, whether it's a software engineer or someone doing something outside of magic, oftentimes we can be brilliant individuals, but not be so great at leading a team or forming a team or managing a team. And I, I feel like this is a topic that maybe doesn't get talked about a lot outside of the, the pro community, because obviously the pros are the ones who are living and breathing and living with those kind of decisions. So it, it's really fascinating to get a glimpse into this this world. And I am wondering, for Team Eureka, what was it that you guys did differently, which made the overall experience better and just produce better results? Um, 
I'm not exactly sure if there was one, you know, the secret uh, to success. But one of the things that I that I liked seeing was good was that we were pretty close and we were also very kind of ambitious. One of the things that we that resonated with with all with some of us were some of the things that were being talked about from from the other teams. Uh, be, uh, you know, hearing things like oh, uh, the players rate each other in a team. You know, they like sit down for dinner and they like make lists of like who they think is the best player on the team, who who they think is the worst player on the team, and and just think these things just seem absolutely absurd to us. You know, and we we kind of try to just focus on the process and have everyone pull their weight in a way. So um, we try to involve uh, everyone, try to. make sure everyone is heard. We also felt that was quite important. And uh, just trying to be honest about the time investments that were necessary, uh, the testing results, and, and uh, incorporating some things that I felt were successful in in uh, past teams, uh, such as you know very productive limited meetings or just in uh, having a good structure for testing, which doesn't always happen, but it's always important to keep people up to speed. You know, have a time where you stop brewing new decks and start refining the ones you actually have. And and I think a lot of these things came through naturally, and it it helped that we had a lot of a big mix of young and ambitious players maybe such as martin Mueller is probably the best example he was supremely talented and very smart and then a lot lots of very experienced players who've been on the pro tour for a while and uh were able to bring uh kind of like an experienced uh, viewpoint and and also uh, it also helped that uh, we the older guys were able to uh, such as me, maybe Oliver Pierre we were able to help you know set up accommodation logistics make make sure everything works out that we have a place to test in there's tables there's lands there's booster packs there everyone brings relevant cards if they were missing cards, being able to get their friends to bring the cards to the pro so a lot of these small things really also helped out I see and are there things from that whole experience that have helped you today as a in your current role as a manager? I mean, all of this experience, I got to know a lot of players through this, right? Because as the players and the team were coming in and out, and we also were considering other players that I got to talk to, and in general, I just felt like just being part of it has given me a great experience and also good exposure in the way uh, in the way our team was presented. So it was really, uh, despite the fact that I considered uh you know during during the heyday of eureka uh i was considering still being pro player and then slowly winding down my career it was still kind of like the the best of times i still remember my last pro tour when i i couldn't i didn't have any vacation days left i couldn't really test for the pro tour at all and i still remember me flying in coming into uh australia after a grueling long trip and still messaging uh, some of the team members like one hour before the deadline if I could have the latest deck list. Uh, and they're like, of course, uh, like you uh, you deserve it. And it just felt really nice that for my last pro tour, my team kind of didn't let me down, even though I kind of did in the testing process. So uh, I, I feel like I've made some really good friends out of it. That sounds like a great team experience where people are able to let their egos and you know who's best who's the worst player all that stuff get out of the way and just really focus on being a team and you have to think that 
results are great results are produced as a result of that culture and environment, right? Yeah, it certainly does help. So about one of your teammates, actually, uh, Pierre Dajong, he, uh, this is maybe a story time. He told me about his favorite moment involving you being one of your last PTs before coverage, which was PT Washington. So can you tell me about what happened when you faced Pierre when both of you were at 10 and 4 for the day? Uh, yeah, I actually, I conceded to him. I, I that tournament was, uh, was, uh, very specific that I started off really well. I, I think I was six and oh, starting day one. And then I lost two successive rounds to, um, to JC Tao and Andrew Brown, who went on to top eight, that particular PT. And the, the next day I three owed the draft and I was nine and two. And at that point I was like really happy about how I was doing. And, uh, but then I, I quickly picked up a few losses and, uh, it, it was, it was the pro to where I knew that, uh, if I didn't top eight, I, uh, I like, I wouldn't keep trying as much and I would probably wind my career down. And so once I picked up the fourth loss, I just knew I wasn't in contention for top eight anymore. And getting to play my friend at that point was like, uh, who uh, someone who actually cared about those pro points who for who the result was relevant it was just like a no-brainer to me and it was even even that much more fun getting to watch pierre play the following round and win as well in in, re in a really really tense match and it was just a moment that a moment of enjoyment that we could both share so it was nice so pierre said that you guys had a funny moment or it was a moment that he didn't get do you remember what he said when he sat down at the table with you? I, I do not recall. You guys were matched up. It was a mirror match. And the way that you conceded, you said, I forgot my deck. And uh, <laughs> Pierre did not understand. And he actually told you, well, then, Mate, go get it. I won't call a judge. And then you said, no, I, you don't understand. I didn't bring my deck. <laughs> do you remember that at all? I, I'll be honest, I don't. But it's now that you say it, it, it does sound kind of familiar. It was after that that Pierre actually realized, okay, uh, you meant to concede. And uh, so when I talked to him about it, he said that it was one of his favorite stories about you, just because it it sort of demonstrated your 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 sacrifice in the in the in that moment to him, and also sort of a demonstration of loyalty because you know you guys were were affiliated with the same team and and uh, you knew that you were moving on to coverage so i thought it was just a good moment to to hear about from him yeah i mean i've had some really good times pierre i'll add one more story um where i played where i first got to know pierre was actually at the pro tour in dublin where he made the finals and lost to jeremy Dezani there we actually played in the limited rounds uh, i think on day two and there was a very nice moment where uh, i had a i had a some sort of crack in octopus or some huge bomb that was about to threaten to win the game but he like over the last few turns he was bluffing a card uh, uh divine verdict which destroys a, a blocking or attacking creature but it was at the point where i managed to tap all those creatures but i had to decide if i want to play around it or not and i we had this like big stare down and i just looked at him and it's like and i told him you're not going to bluff me or something similar and i attacked him and he didn't have it but he tried to like be as you like to say hollywood it like he tried to you know pretend like he had it for a few turns but i just didn't buy it and i told him like don't ever try to bluff me again and like 
And uh, we kind of had this like running joke and it's how we got to know each other and how I wouldn't say we became friends, but you know, how we got to talking and, and over the years getting to pick him up for, for, uh, for a pro tour team was a great honor. And he was also the mastermind behind so many of our decks or, or even uh, like special, special plans for sideboards and so on. Like he was truly a very valuable uh, player to have on a team and also a good friend. Yeah, absolutely. And Pierre had mentioned that about you as well. He actually said that the first time, uh, you know, you guys met was in a high pressure situation, as you just described. But, you know, he had one word to describe you. It was actually, he said that Mate was very friendly. <laughs> so he just said that he had a great interaction with you initially when you guys met. And uh, he just has always had a good impression of you just being very professional. And I think that had a lot to do with... Uh, why he became a part of Eureka later on. I mean, that's my general approach. When when I was playing on the Pro Tour, I, like, things got intense, but I always tried to be uh, very nice, um, thoughtful about how I communicate uh, with my opponents and uh, try to understand the situation that each of us is in. Um, I might have overstepped my bounds a few times when I was younger, but I tried to be, uh, I tried to avoid being, uh, you know, very brash or or arrogant when I when I play or or over celebrate uh, in some moments. And I think I like to think that um, it's something that has helped me throughout my playing and coverage career. Yeah, definitely. And there was another team member of yours, uh, Emmanuel, who I had the pleasure of speaking to for a little while. He said that you are a great leader, kind of a father figure because you've been in the game longer than, than he has. And he actually said that you give great advice as well because he was talking about GP Prague in 2018 where he needed a 6-1 finish to lock up gold. Do you remember what you told him to do when he was struggling a little bit there? I I I I believe I told him just to just what I tell all my all my friends when they're in such a situation just to focus on the game keep keep taking one one at a time and just get there and just don't do any mistakes he might he might have some more specifics but in general I try to encourage my friends uh, and the pro players I manage as much as I can that's exactly what you told him and what he told me he you know you told him to focus and uh as he said, you also told him to stay home. <laughs> maybe he had a, maybe some party to go to. So um, he was very glad that you gave him the advice. He took the advice and he, he managed to achieve his goals. So he, um, you know, he just wanted me to pass that along. I mean, I, I, I always try to tell him to go play because he's a great player in my opinion. But uh, and I try to support him, but it doesn't doesn't always work out for him uh, as well. Um, so I, I wish he was doing even better because I, I think he has the talent. Um, but yeah, it's it's just something I like to, uh, I like to do, and with Emmanuel especially, and now uh, the player on actually Team Eureka still exists. Uh, it's uh, Emmanuel is actually on it. It's part of the team series. There are a few other players that I'm I'm also fairly close to on that team, and they're basically carrying the torch of something that we created. Some, some three years ago. So I, uh, I'm i very happy to keep in touch with him and some of the other guys who are on the team. And uh, while they're they're not, uh, you know, making the finals of the team series, I think they're always uh, having a solid showing. That's great. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was around coverage and Magic Esports. So, Mate, I wanted to ask, 
What are your thoughts regarding the future of Magic Esports? Just general thoughts, but also what do you think they, as in Wizards of the Coast, is doing well? And what do you think they could potentially do better? This is a, a very broad question, and I I think it's best to start answering by the fact that just to frame it for people who who might listen to the, this podcast uh, sometime later in the future, we had an MPL announcement, so we found out what what the MPL is, how it's going to work. We also had then some new, inf- relatively new information at the time of recording about uh, how uh, um, how the mythic championships are going to work how you qualify for them and how what it can lead lead you to and uh, of, of course magic arena is a, is a huge part of this i uh, i think it's it was a very tough few months and years for people versus of the coast i mean there were big changes from my understanding at least at the at the corporate level so a lot of has been invested in in uh, like changing the magic organized play significantly and esports is a big part of it of course when you see other games like league of legends fortnite uh, even hearthstone and then potentially now a lot of the the other upcoming games and even some some of the games which you don't think are that big but have made a really good uh following on esports i'm thinking something like rocket league or even heroes of the storm before it was taken down they they all had a very strong uh esports presence and attracted a lot of fans to their platform so i completely understand why wizards of the coast decided to go with a a so-called esports approach and having a product that it's uh uh, for such quality as Magic Arena, this definitely helped. I I think I'm very positive about the future of Magic, especially with the MPL. But this year is going to be uh, very important because um, one of the things that has been a problematic point for Magic in general, and something that that the team series has uh, seemed to alleviate, is how to get sponsors into the game, and uh, basically bring more money into the ecosystem from outside because Wizards has always been limited by their marketing budget and their um, their inability to, you know, or I wouldn't say inability, maybe not always having the flexibility of, of play around with the budget as necessary has kind of led them on this path of trying to do something different, something that would maybe uh, add sponsors to the game but also add new people to the game and uh i think so far so far so good but we'll see how it turns out with the mpl in 2019 i'm very hopeful but execution is going to be very very important so that uh the coverage and the whole ecosystem is going to be good because if they succeed here getting bigger players uh, and attracting big companies to the magic franchise is going to be really important not just for next year but all the following years for magic yeah so it sounds like you're quite optimistic and dare i say excited about what is to come oh i'm very excited i i you know i'm i'm invested in magic since 99 so i wanted to do well and i want my friends to do well you know i'm so i'm so happy that some of them now have a, a job you know, being a Magic Pro League member is, is, is something that gets paid really well, considering the situation uh, that, they're, that, they're, that they were in previously, where, you know, the job security was quite low. Uh, but now it might just end up being 
being quite high if they if the players manage to string together a few years on the Magic Pro League. Uh, but we'll see how that how that ends up. And I'm I'm mostly optimistic, but also like already on the lookout for future opportunities. Like working with the, with the Haria brand, you know, we're already like slightly in discussions about like okay, so what are we going to do once the MPL launches? Right, like what's going to happen? Uh, how are we going to go about things? And uh, just in general, I'm already trying to to figure out like uh, how can I get uh, the big uh, esports teams like maybe Fnatic, SK Gaming, you know, CLG, and so on. How can these teams get into Magic? Is it is it really feasible? Can I can I do something out of it can someone else do it you know like all these wheels are turning in my head and trying to think of all the options that are that are uh in front of us or will be in front of us soon so it's definitely exciting right it's an exciting time it's just up to the different teams and people to sort of seize the moment as it were yeah yeah i mean it's it's going to put a lot of pressure on the wizards of the coast to to present it well but also of course on the players themselves not just the existing ones but the people who want to be part of that and honing their online and their personal persona their brand trying to find a niche that really works well for them i think this is one of the biggest challenges for existing mpl players there's 32 of them and they have to find a way to differentiate themselves from the pack uh because Results will not always go go your way, but you can build a fan base if you uh, present uh, other Magic players with something they can relate to. You know, I I always uh, like one of the things I'm most disappointed with and and I regret about my Magic Pro playing career was that I didn't never had a like an like a meme or like an inside joke that that players knew about me instantly in a way like you know that Craig Wesco is always playing white beanie or you know that Shaheen Surani always likes to play control you know or like things like small things like or like uh, Owen Turtenwald and Reed Duke and, and William Jensen are the Peach Garden Oath like these sort of things I think really help um instill the names in, in magic players minds and help find easier associations with so it's one, one thing to regret but maybe a, a good uh, cautionary tale for for future mpl members well you don't want to shortchange yourself too much because as i was watching through old coverage um they did call you the big z so that was, uh, <laughs> that was a pretty, that's a good one i think yeah, that's actually uh, Jerry's making. Jerry Thompson created this uh, back in like 2009 or so because he was he just couldn't pronounce my name and he just said, I'll just call you Big Z. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And it just stuck ever since. Yeah, but I, I do understand what you mean because when you look at other games or even poker or things like that, you know, some people do have more meme value than others you know they might be always wearing a a certain hat or a certain thing that helps them stand out in in coverage as it were yeah yeah absolutely and uh, i mean i i've used to follow poker uh, a lot when i was younger uh, during my magic playing day as well because a lot of my friends who started playing magic also went on to play poker and then on to other things so it was always fun to follow them around and i i didn't want to miss any of the world series of poker coverage and it, it just felt entertaining to me and exactly it, it's where i learned that maybe standing out from the crowd a little bit through through these things really really helps your persona and helps uh um, just make a bigger impression uh, on your environment. Yeah, for sure. 
And are there things about the coverage itself that, in your personal opinion, you feel could be improved, whether it's arena or tabletop? Uh, just so for coverage in general? Yes, that's right. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the production value can always go up. I think um, a lot of it is a question of uh, investment. Uh, like you, people always severely, severely underestimate the amount of uh, money needed to get certain things done. And I think we've had glimpses where I think uh, Wizard of the Coast has done well to show what what could be done. So, for example, like good animations on on their screens or like a proper stage of where the players are presented uh good lighting good camera angles to work with the players and uh just in general uh good quality segments in between rounds or and just making sure that you're also showing as much magic as possible while you while you do that it's all a bunch of a lot of moving parts that you're trying to align and i think given the resources available to versus in the past and we'll see how things turn out in the future it it's been decent but i think yeah it can always get better right but uh, i think wizards right now is focusing on mpl as we've seen by you know the recent uh, well at that time of recording the recent uh talks with gp coverage and how wizards has basically said there there would be no video coverage from gps anymore until channel fireball picked up uh, the slack from them and i think this is all a kind of like a concentrated effort by wizards of the coast to focus their their resources on making the mpl really good and presentable and i think if they succeed there, a lot of the good things will trickle down into tabletop as well. Yes, hopefully the things get better. Hopefully, as we talked about, more money flows into the ecosystem. I think everything can be a net positive if uh, if uh, people just figure out the right way to uh, to make it happen. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Thank you so much, Mate, for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. I felt like I learned a lot. And uh, I wish you all the best. I appreciate it, James. You've been a wonderful host and you're asking good questions. And I could go on for hours about some of these topics. So <laughs> I, I'm glad you kind of reined me in. You were great and uh, hope that we can do it again sometime. Yeah, I hope so too. If you, if you ever plan to uh, go to maybe London or Barcelona for the for the Mythic Championships there, uh, I would be more than happy to uh, inv invite you out to dinner. Awesome. Hope to see you there sometime. And that's the end of my conversation with Mate. As always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.